Support for WMFE comes from Orlando Science Center, offering four floors of wonder and discovery for families and curious minds of all ages. With exhibits, movies, and live shows that promote learning new skills, exploring fresh ideas, and cultivating a better understanding of the world around us. Tickets and more at osc.org. Nuclear power and the search for life in our universe. You're listening to Are We There Yet? Yeah, a radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA's Administrator Bill Nelson is calling for a demonstration of a new type of rocket, one powered by nuclear propulsion. And while its aim is to get humans to places like Mars, some astrobiologists say it can help us search for life outside our planet. We'll hear from one scientist who hopes the technology can help us discover possible signs of life on the stuff between stars. Then we'll talk to NASA astronaut Woody Hoberg He's the pilot of SpaceX's next Crew Dragon mission to the International Space Station. We'll hear from the first-time space flyer about his upcoming mission. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. Before we get into the development of nuclear thermopropulsion and what that means for exploring faraway places in the search for life, let's start the show a little closer to home. NASA astronaut Woody Hoberg is a member of the Crew-6 mission launching late February on a trip to the International Space Station. Hoberg is serving as the pilot of that mission, and it will be his first trip to orbit. Before he leaves the planet, we had a chance to catch up with Hoberg from Houston, Texas. We began our conversation talking about a long-standing tradition of human spaceflight, a mission patch. What does having a crew patch mean? Does it kind of give you an emotional attachment to the mission? I mean, what, what does it mean to you to hold that in your hand? Yeah, well, the crew patch is really special for so many reasons. Um, the process of kind of pulling it together as a crew and figuring out what elements are important to us as a crew was meaningful. I think it's a chance to celebrate the the teams that help us uh, along the way. So there's some elements that kind of tie back to um, ground teams. Um, and then I think it's just, uh, it, you know, it's great to have patches and be able to like hand them out to the, again, the teams that have supported us along the way. It's a little memento that that we find meaningful and therefore um, has meaning when we, when we hand it out to people or wear it on our patches, or, mm-hmm. sorry, on our flight suits. And what was it like holding it for the first time? I mean, I'm sure you've seen designs, but but physically having it. Actually, we're. It's funny. We actually don't have them yet. We've seen uh, there's there's samples that have gotten made, but uh, we haven't actually received our patches yet. Um, so uh, that should be coming very very soon. Okay, excellent. Another thing I want to ask you about, Woody, is you're a commercially rated pilot. You've got single and multi-engine ratings, and you're serving as pilot on this mission. Uh, but these vehicles, or, or, or those vehicles, are, are vastly different than uh, the SpaceX Crew Dragon. Can you talk a bit about the differences in in piloting a spacecraft as, as opposed to an aircraft that you have experience in? Yeah, certainly. Um, it's a great question, and it is very different. But I think there are some common threads. And so I feel very fortunate um, that I've been able to acquire that background. Um, And so I think, you know, for example, um, I've learned many new airplanes and the process of, you know, your first airplane, the first airplane you fly, you learn to fly in, it's a really big deal, like learning how to do that. And then 
as you learn more and more airplanes, you kind of develop this process for learning the systems and learning, you know, air speeds that you need to memorize, learning the bold face or the emergency procedures. Um, and, and you just get used to this process of, well, I have this new vehicle that I'm going to be in control of. I'm going to be pilot in command. And what are the things I need to know and how do I study to get ready for this, this new thing I'm learning? And so very much this is this is a very different type of vehicle, but I apply that same process to learning the SpaceX Crew Dragon. What are the, what's the boldface? What are the things I really need to know? What are the systems? And then also the crew resource management. So thinking about how we fly the vehicle as a crew, not just um, single pilot, but you know, I'll be flying, I'll be uh, sitting next to Steve Bowen and as a crew, we'll fly the vehicle. And so thinking about how we divide tasks and how we have the most situational awareness possible as an entire crew is, is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, there's lots of uh, aviation lessons that can be applied there. Mm -hmm. How has it been in, in, in the simulators, you know, working on crew dragon with the crew. And then also, you know, I, I I'm under the understanding that, you know, there's been sound that's been captured from previous missions that gets pumped into training. Like how is it like to kind of take in the whole thing in the simulator and, and do you feel ready for launch? Yeah, the simulator out in Hawthorne is excellent. Um, it's quite realistic. It's got not only the displays and all the software running that we interface with, but also all this kind of stowage, like the interior of the capsule is quite realistic. Mm -hmm. We have all our fire firefighting equipment and our kind of emergency equipment. We're there in the seats. We can get in our suits and actually pressurize the way we would in certain emergency scenarios. So all that is quite realistic. Um, I'd say maybe the, the one thing we don't get is the actual G loading. Uh, but we did have a chance to go up to the centrifuge up at Wright Patterson Air Force Base and experience a full launch profile. And so I kind of keep that in the back of my mind, what I felt like at three G's. And when we're in the simulator out in Hawthorne and I see three G's on our G meter, I know kind of what, what I'm going to be feeling like. I'm going to be a little slower. Breathing is going to be a little harder. I'm not going to be quite as quick <laughs> mm -hmm. to respond to things. And I try to kind of keep that awareness in the back of my mind during training. Mm -hmm. But yeah, back to your question, crew five actually expressed when they got on orbit, Hey, this felt a lot like the simulator. <laughs> mm -hmm. so. and that's going to be reassuring, right? As, as a first time flyer <laughs> to know that this is going to be a very similar experience that you're training for, right? Yeah, it's absolutely reassuring. I think getting the repetitions is so important. You want it, you want this to be just kind of, uh, as familiar as it can be so that when things happen on orbit, we just draw right back to those scenarios we already saw in training many, many times. Mm -hmm. Woody, with, with this being your first mission to space, how, how are you mentally preparing for this? Have, have you talked to other astronauts and, and how are you kind of getting in the mindset that, my goodness, in, in about a month, I'm going to space? Yeah, it's, it is wild. A, a month from tomorrow, actually, will be our launch day. Um, We've been really busy with training. So um, I think that's that's a large part of our preparation is just doing all the training. Um, I have had a chance to talk to some veteran flyers and that's been incredibly valuable. Um, any chance, anytime we can talk to previously flown crew members, especially about just the small differences between what we can simulate here on earth and then kind of how it really is when you're weightless and trying to function um, in that microgravity environment just the, the little things um, end up being important. And so that perspective from flown crew members has been super, super valuable.
Mm-hmm. And we know with we know with space that I mean risk is low, but there's still inherent risk in in space flight. Um, you know, how have you had been having those conversations with with your family, and how do you you know personally prepare yourself for you know the risk that that is involved in space flight? Yeah, um, it's a it's such a good question. Um, I have some familiarity actually from my background in climbing with kind of those objective hazards where you prepare so much and you do everything you can in your control to minimize the risk. But then there's just, there's all those little things like a a rock fall out of nowhere that could get you. Um, And so I'm kind of comfortable with that type of setting. Um, I think I take maybe a somewhat stoic approach to it where I control the things that I can control. I prepare myself as best as I can, but I know that there's some things that are just fully outside my control. And um, and I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, what we're doing, I truly believe in, I, I believe in the importance of human spaceflight. And so I think uh, we wouldn't be, you know, if we weren't willing to take some risk, we, we wouldn't do it. But I feel that it's well worth the risk we're taking. Um, and so I just couldn't be happier or more excited to uh, to get to participate. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Woody, thank yeah. you so much. Um, I'm looking forward. I'm, I'm here in Orlando, so I'll be out there for your launch. Very much looking forward to watching you leave the planet. So best of luck to oh, you and your crew. That's really cr- cool. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, great chatting with you. That was NASA astronaut Woody Hoberg, pilot of SpaceX and NASA's Crew-6 mission. The mission is currently scheduled to launch no earlier than February 26 from the Kennedy Space Center. Still to come, nuclear rockets are exciting, especially those searching for life in our universe. We hear from astrobiologist Manasvi Lingam about how the development could answer one of science's biggest questions. Are we alone? Are we there yet? Is back in a minute here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA wants nuclear rockets. The agency's administrator announced a partnership with DARPA for a demonstration by 2027. Simply put, nuclear-powered rockets use less mass than traditional liquid-fueled rockets. That means they can take missions farther and faster into our solar system, including humans, to Mars. But it's beyond Mars, where Florida Tech's Manasvi Lingham envisions nuclear-powered missions going. He's an astrobiologist and says this technology might help us find signs of life well beyond our solar system and only take a few decades to get us there. Lingham joins us now to talk about this nuclear-powered future and the search for life. Manasvi, welcome back to the show. Yeah, hi. Thank you for having me. So NASA is focusing on, well, really charging the engineering community with coming up with nuclear thermo uh, propulsion. Um, And this is super exciting for astrobiology. We're going to get into that. But before we do that, can you just give us a quick primer? What is nuclear thermal propulsion and why is it so important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be happy to, Brandon. So let's first take a step. Let's take a step back and first look at how a rocket works. So a rocket works through Newton's laws. So basically what it does is it uh, ejects a bunch of fuel out in one direction, and then that pushes the rocket forward in the opposite direction. So basically, this is known as the law of conservation of momentum. And the more mass and the more uh, amount of uh, mass that you push out faster, the, the faster your rocket can move as well. So basically, the whole idea of a rocket is a you know to get a lot of mass out 
uh, and then secondly to push it out at a very high speed so it's just, it's the second part where nuclear thermal propulsion really shine because what nuclear thermal propulsion does is it takes a nuclear reactor and it uses the energy that you get from that reactor to heat the gases to a very high temperature something like 4500 fahrenheit and that particular gases are ejected out of the spacecraft at a very high speed you know somewhere on the order of uh, 10 miles per second or so which is in- extremely fast and by doing that because you're pushing out this uh, matter so fast the rocket itself can begin to move at a very rapid speed so nuclear thermal propulsion enables us to achieve pretty high speeds compared to the normal chemical rockets we use mhm and essentially with the chemical rockets as you mentioned you have to bring a lot of mass and that mass it takes a lot to get it where it needs to go and then you're limited by how much mass you can actually get up into space right with a the nuclear thermal rocket it's less mass and you're having more energy right yep so uh, if you want to get to the same final speed that you want to get to uh, with a normal chemical rocket you would need roughly 10 times as much mass or more compared to what you would need for a nuclear thermal rocket so you would need to carry much less fuel to reach the same final speed for a nuclear thermal rocket. Mhm. And essentially that means you can go faster or farther in your exploration, right? With less. So this is very exciting to take things to farther places in our solar system and even beyond, right? Yeah, exactly. So you get more bang for your buck, so to speak, and that's of course very exciting because the thing with space is it's vast. I mean, the the kind of distances we are talking about are millions of miles, billions of miles sometimes. So you know, to get from here to the moon, we can do that without too much issue. But even if we want to go to Mars, a lot of times the kind of normal chemical rockets we are using end up taking anywhere between six months to a year, whereas with nuclear propulsion we could cut it down to a few months so you're you're cutting down the transit time you're also able to go farther um into space that has got to be exciting for someone like you right manasvi you you are an astrobiologist you're searching for life in the universe this opens up a whole new opportunity of places to look right yeah absolutely i mean uh, you know if you really want to know if you really want to answer this super fundamental question which is are we alone in the universe there's only one way to do that which is we have to go and look for it we have to look for it through telescopes we have to look for it by sending spacecraft to other planets and moon so we have to go out there so how do we do that well i mean we have chemical rockets they're great you know we've we've launched voyager 1 and 2 which have gone to the very edges of the solar system uh, but then took a long time to get there so whereas with this new technology we can do the same thing in a shorter amount of time and also travel further than we've gone before and where would you like this to go <laughs> of all the places <laughs> in space where should we be looking with with this nuclear propulsion well i mean hopefully one day we'll go to all the places i you know we want to go but you got to start somewhere so you know i i believe in doing things in phases you know one step at a time as they say or you know they also say a baby must learn how to walk before she can run so in the same way 
Um, I think, uh, you know, I would like to first see it being deployed for Mars because to get to the moon is not very hard, but Mars is the next target. And moreover, it's also very interesting from the standpoint of astrobiology, you know, trying to search for past life on Mars. So, you know, getting astronauts to Mars, that, that would be a great place to start. But after that, I want to see it go into the outer solar system to go to the moons of Saturn and uh, Jupiter, moons like Europa, moons like Titan, which is Saturn's moon, and, and so on. And maybe even further beyond in due time. But obviously, you, you wrote a paper looking at an analysis of of what these propulsion systems would allow astrobiologists like yourself to survey throughout um, these regions, including areas between stars, the space between, which, as you mentioned before, space is vast. Um but you're saying there's there's interesting things in between destinations, and and that's what this this technology is going to open us up to see what is there, what could be there. Yeah, that's a great question. So let me first start with an analogy. You know, when I was in India, uh, let's say you hear about cities in the U.S., it's almost invariably going to be those on the East Coast or the West Coast. I myself spent time near, near New York City and Boston, you know, when I was at Harvard and so on. And similarly, uh, you know, uh, you know, the big cities like L.A. and so on. But then there's stuff in between. You know, we, we, uh, we ignore as many fantastic cities that exist in the Midwest in the south and the southeast and so on so in the same way um, we normally think of stars as being this uh, the the places we want to get to so we have our solar system then we have a different star with its own planets but it turns out that the space between the stars actually consists of billions trillions of small objects some of them are just tiny grains so they're like microscopic but some of them are larger, they're the size of a pebble, some are rocks, some are boulders. But then, if we, it actually turns out, our own research has shown that there's actually a planet-sized object that are just drifting through space. They're, they're very faint, so we don't see them, but we believe that there's uh, potentially hundreds of them in the space between the stars, between our star and the nearest star to the sun. We, we think that there could be tens or hundreds of them drifting. So space is just not really empty. It has all these interesting objects drifting from all over the galaxy, just passing by. And so one of the things that I'm really interested in is trying to get to the space between the stars and then to see what's out there. And do you think that there might be some buggers or, or life on those things <laughs> hanging out in, in on these objects between the stars? So the, the these objects would be, you know, let's say roughly the size of um, Mars or, or smaller. So in a lot of cases, what might happen is that the temperatures on the surface is going to be just too cold for, you know, life as we know it, because space out there is extremely cold. You know, we're talking about many hundreds of, uh, many hundreds below zero Fahrenheit. So incredibly cold. But the good thing is that there could be some form of life deeper underneath the surface, much as how if you dig deep below the Earth's surface, you will still find microbes and stuff. So uh, do I think, you know, whether there could be life out there? I think it's definitely possible, you know, for microbial life, and it could be there below the surface. Uh, so with, with a mission on a, a, a nuclear thermal rocket, it would be heading to a destination, right? And you're, you're seeing these things on the way there. Um, and with, with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson 
asking to design and demonstrate a working nuclear thermo rocket by 2027. I mean, this is coming incredibly fast when it comes to development, right? I mean, is this changing the way that astrobiologists are thinking about big questions, big research questions, hypotheses about where life may be and where we actually might be able to go in our lifetime with this technology being developed like this? Yeah, no, that's a very rapid development. So just to give you a little bit of historical context, the physical principles behind this propulsion have been understood for a long time. And by a long time, I mean, we've known them for 60 years or so. But this is a welcome development, you know, uh, trying to actually build a prototype that actually works and then and then building on that prototype to get actual spacecraft out into the solar system. So, yeah, I think as our technology develops, we are definitely going to see more and more interest being shown towards targets that we previously thought were beyond our reach. For instance, we, we, some scientists have suggested there might be a planet nine uh, because Pluto got demoted from the status of a planet. Uh, and so, you know, there might be a planet nine, which is 10 times as far, far out from the sun as Pluto is. So it's way far out than Pluto, but some scientists think it's there. And if it's there, well, uh, if you want to get to it through chemical rockets, it turns out to be really long. We are talking about 75 years or so, as my group has shown. But if you use the nuclear thermal rocket, you can do it in about 40 years, which is a big improvement given that the Voyager missions you know, have been running for 45 years and they're still working. So we know that we can do missions in 40 years. And imagine how cool it would be to get to, you know, the first proper planet nine and then, you know, and we think that it might be bigger than Earth as well. So we'll be able to see a big planet out there in the outer solar system if it exists. And nuclear thermal propulsion is one particular mode of propulsion that could facilitate this particular endeavor. Mm -hmm. That's kind of mind blowing to think that if a planet nine exists with nuclear thermal propulsion, we could get there in four decades. That's that's bonkers. Like that's not much time at all, right? Uh, we we do sometimes think it's a lot of time, but just to place it in context, I want to say that the, the New Horizon spacecraft, which went to Pluto, took about eleven years to get there, and this is ten times further. So it would normally require hundred and ten years to get there. Instead, you can collapse it down to forty years thanks to nuclear thermal propulsion. So that's a big difference. I mean, 110 years, you know, nobody's going to work on the mission and then live to see the end, the end results of that mission. 40 years, it can happen. You know, you could have a young engineer who's working on it. And then, you know, towards the end of their career, they actually start seeing the data from them. That's fascinating and so cool to think of that that could happen so quickly. Finally, Manavzi, we've been talking a lot about especially when it comes to Mars, we're looking for, you know, ancient signs of life on, on some of these, um, these bodies that may be in, in the space between stars, it would be deep under the surface, but you've also done a little bit of research looking into extraterrestrial intelligence, something, something greater than a little, um, you know, a microbe or something on the surface somewhere. And, and, and you've done some research about looking at signals in space to determine whether or not those are from extraterrestrial signals or not. How do you go about finding that one spot in the vastness of space that we might want to send one of these rockets to, uh, whether it be just a, to get some more observations or a signal that, hey, we're here as well? Where do we find extraterrestrial life? How do we start that? 
intelligent extraterrestrial life, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's a great question. So, you know, when it comes to um, just microbial life, you know, we think there's many targets to look out there, you know, even in our own, own solar system, such as Mars, uh, Europas, which is Jupiter's moon, Titan, which is Saturn's moon, Enceladus, Saturn's moon, etc., etc. With extraterrestrial intelligence, you know, we don't really have... Um, um, you know, we don't really have well-defined targets yet. Instead, what we've been doing so far is to just take our telescopes, put, move them all across the sky, see if we pick them any kind of anomalous radio signals or uh, optical signals and so on. And then, you know, then try and decode what the source of that signal might be. So this is currently where the field stands. And with, when it comes to, you know, current rockets and propulsion technology, I think in the near future, it's going to be useful primarily for microbial life because, again, as I said, um, we are currently still in the stage of only searching for, you know, radio signals and optical signals. And if we ever get a signal one day in the future, it's going to be coming from unimaginably vast distances in all likelihood. And even the fastest rockets would not get us there on short time scale. So I think for now, you know, in the immediate future, we will just have to focus on listening through various telescopes. Um, the prospect of actually using a propulsion system is, you know, it's not going to be uh, probably not going to be very relevant in the near future. But again, in the distant future, we don't know, of course, what might happen. But even in the near future, I think that there's a lot that we can do, you know, in searching for signs of microbial life, other simple life, and so on. I mean, going back to those signals, though, I mean, I, I think of radio signal like, th like this, this conversation we're having is transmitted on on the fm band it's going to be out into space but like also other objects in space create their own radio waves so like how and i'm i'm going to go ahead and say that this is an intelligent conversation we're having how would somebody outside of our planet understand that the what the radio waves that they're hearing is, is something from two beings and and not you know some sort of star or whatever how can you how can we tell that it's it's made by an intelligent being yeah, yeah. Now that's, uh, that's, of course, something that radio astronomers, I mean, in uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, have been thinking about for a long time. So basically, let's say you get a radio signal and you want to know, is it something that is being artificially produced, like, you know, through uh, intelligent beings? Or is it something that just is being produced naturally due to some astronomical phenomenon? And it turns out there's several metrics we can use to diagnose one versus the other. One of them is the bandwidth. So, you know, as uh, many of you and many of your uh, listeners might know, we have very specific bandwidths, you know, for our radio. So we, you know, we broadcast in a certain band. Whereas the thing with most astrophysical phenomena is that this energy, this radio waves, are, are dispersed over a very vast range of frequencies. So they're not narrow band, instead they're very, very, very broad band. And so that's one major difference. If we find some kind of unusually narrow band signal, you know, people think that that would be a good indicator of extraterrestrial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Fascinating stuff. Um, every time I chat with you, Manavsvi, I have a, a greater appreciation of, of our universe and, and the work that astrobiologists like you are doing to uncover its secrets. So um, we've been speaking with Manavsvi Lingam. He is an assistant professor of astrobiology 
the Florida Institute of Technology. Thank you so much, Manasi, for, for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, no. Thank you so much, Brendan, for having me. It was uh, lovely chatting with you about all these exciting state-of-the-art uh, development. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. we got more space coverage online at WMFE.org. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Our producer is Beatrice Oliveira, and script editing this week from Danielle Pryor. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. 